God bless our children's workers. They do such a good job. I have only two kids, and I feel like I'm losing my mind half the time. So they do such a good job, not just managing the kids, but teaching them and loving them very well. So I appreciate them very much, and I love having the kids up here. Well, good morning again, and we're continuing in our Reaching Forward series talking about uh, what it looks like to reach forward. Uh, and in this series, uh, if you haven't noticed, uh, what we're doing a lot of is discussing the prerequisites to reaching forward. Uh, as mentioned by Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, this is kind of our key passage. Not that I have already reached the goal or am already fully mature, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. To reach forward to the abundant life that Christ has for us, and I hope that you know that and believe it to be true, that God's desire, his goal for you is abundant life. Uh, but to reach forward to that, uh, Paul is telling us, and I believe uh, he is obviously correct, that we need to forget what is behind. As we talked about last week, we can't intentionally forget things. Wouldn't that be nice to be able to just intentionally forget things, hurts that we've experienced, things that we've had to go through in life, uh, even simple things. It would just be nice to forcibly remove it from our mind so that it was no longer there. We can't do that, though, and that's not what Paul is getting at in this letter. That's not what he's getting at when he says that we need to forget what is behind because he, Paul, is very familiar with our limitations as humans. Uh, what he's getting at is that our past should not have power over us. Forgetting it is releasing it in a way that it no longer defines how we live. And I, I, I can't remember who had said it, but I, I, I love the way they put our past. He said, you know, our past should never define us, but it can help explain us. Uh, it helps explain how we got to where we got, but it doesn't have to define us. Uh, some of you know a bit of my family history, and I love that truth, that it doesn't have to define us, but it can help explain some of who we are and how we've gotten to where we are. But what Paul is getting at is that our past shouldn't have power over us. It shouldn't control the way we view others and the way we view God. Things from our past must be fully acknowledged, fully healed, and fully released. That's a statement we're gonna make many times through this because to forget what is behind means that it must be fully released. But we can't just be like, well, you know what? I'm just gonna let go of all of the baggage in my life. Wouldn't that be nice to just release all of the baggage we have? Uh, that would be great, but there's a process. And I think a big part of that process is first acknowledging that there is a problem, acknowledging the hurt, acknowledging uh, the failures both in us and others, but then to walk through a process of healing, to be healed from that hurt. When things are not fully acknowledged, healed, and released, they become weights. 
as the author of Hebrew mentions in Hebrews chapter 12, verses one to two, it says, therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus. And I want you to remember this part because we're gonna come back to that. The source and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross and despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. Last week, we discussed uh, leaving the weight of shame behind. Uh, I hope it struck a chord with you because I think, uh, I, I believe, most of us are gonna deal with shame on a probably regular basis. As we encounter the holiness of God, we're gonna feel shame. We're gonna feel the weight of our wrongness, the weight of our brokenness, the ways that we fail him. Uh, we're going to experience shame. And I would argue that's appropriate for us to feel shame, but it's not appropriate for us to carry it because we can't. It ruins us, it cripples us, it brings us to our knees, and it's why some of us live miserable lives, why we struggle, why we don't experience joy, why when we look around we see everybody else's faults and we see the problems everybody else is having and we criticize and we become critical and we, and we just have all these issues because we're trying to carry shame that we were never meant to carry. Today, we're gonna tackle the weight of bitterness. This is a weight which has plagued the church since the beginning. Since the, the day it was founded, they've been dealing with bitterness. Bitterness has no place in the church family, and it is the result of unforgiveness. That's where it leads us, is to bitterness. The author of Hebrews, right after telling us uh, the passage we just read about, about laying aside every weight, just a few verses later, he says in verses 14 and 15, pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and by it defiling many. And that's a, another passage I want us to, to dwell on this morning and, and think about because especially of that last statement, uh, causing trouble and by it defiling many. That's the truth of bitterness is it defiles much more than just those around us. It, it spreads like a, a poison, like a cancer to those around us because when we're caught up in bitterness, we can't help but release that through the words that we speak, through the critical spirit that we release. We, we can't help it. And, that, and this verse is speaking to that truth. So how does a root of bitterness spring up? How, how does that root begin? It starts with unforgiveness. See, the church family, should, we should be the experts on forgiveness, not bitterness. We should be the, the foremost experts on what forgiveness looks like. Uh, people should, from the world should walk into a church and see how it, it, it exemplified in the community that is here, in the family that is here, in the people uh, that call this place home, they should walk in and be like, man, I've never seen forgiveness like this. Like these people genuinely love 
one another. Yet in many churches, we see more bitter people than experts on forgiveness. And that's a, that's a sad truth. Uh, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we probably all know if you had to uh, rate some of the churches you've been in, maybe you've been in this church your whole life, how have we done or how have other churches been? Uh, was the community one that you knew you could stand up in front of that church and just lay it all bare and just say, this is what I've done, this is, what, uh, this is the hurt that's on my heart, this is the sin that's in my life, and they would welcome you with open arms. Or have you been in communities where you thought, well, I better not tell anybody that one. Uh, I don't even know if they'll want me back in church. You know, I love the, the moment that we had last week with John coming up and, and just giving me a hug because we had a difficult meeting and uh, tensions were high and then we just... I love it, you know, that we have genuine relationships. <laughs> we can have a, a tension, and then we can have a great conversation, and we did, and we had a great conversation, and, and uh, fully restored, and I love that. I love that about our elders, is that we love each other enough to go back and have those conversations, and we don't let the root of bitterness uh, rise up, and it was just so funny, because that's what we're talking about this week, uh, that we were talking about this, and God just knows what he's doing, you know, and he's just good at what he does, but this should be a place where we can be completely transparent, totally honest with those around us. So we look around this room, we should see people in this room that we know that we could bring anything to them because that's what the church family was designed to be. The whole gospel, the whole New Testament, read the book of Acts, it was all about a different kind of community. And there are some Bible experts, and I agree with them, that would say there was nothing really transformational and, 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 and new and, and extraordinary about the church except for community. The way they gathered, the way they, they mixed their lives together with one another, that was the difference. And so what does the enemy come after in the church? What has he sought to destroy is the community that we have with each other. It's why for many people, church is an event on Sunday from 10.30 to hopefully 12 and not after. And that's what church is. And because the enemy has convinced us to get to that point and robbed us of community. Most of us, if we look around this room, I love uh, John's, John's sermon where he did a great job talking about community and what it should look like. Uh, let's be honest, we look around this room, how many people have we invited into our home? How many people ha have we, can we genuinely say, I, that is a deep friendship I have there? And I'm not even related to them, but that's a deep friendship. I know that if I was struggling, if I was in that dark place, I could call them and they would sit with me. They wouldn't condemn me. They wouldn't rebuke me. They wouldn't tell me how messed up I am. They would just sit with me and help me get to Jesus. That's what this family is designed to be. That's who we should be. Not bitter people who look around the room and say, well, I remember what that person did to me and I remember what that person did to me and I remember, oh, that person, they left the church but now they're back and, but I remember that whole situation. I know what they did. I know what that was, oh, blah, 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 blah. And unfortunately, that tends to be where, where churches are stuck because they're not willing to enter that place of vulnerability with one another and of genuine relationship. We call ourselves a family. I take that responsibility very seriously to be a family. 
But as in any family, the closer you get, the, the closer you live life together, the more you spend time with one another, what's gonna happen? It's more likely that you're gonna get offended. You're gonna get bothered. You're gonna get irritated by one another. It should happen. There should be a healthy tension that happens, that you feel comfortable being yourself around church people. You don't have to put on the facade. You don't have to uh, try to tamper down your personality or who you are to be around them, but you can just be yourself and know, well, I know somebody's probably gonna be irritated by who I am, and that's okay. Some of you get irritated because of who I am, and that's okay. You don't have to, you know, I don't have to be your best friend, but we should be able to communicate with one another and be honest with each other. And when we walk into this place, not feel like we have to put on some facade or make it look good because somebody, you know, cranky so-and-so is gonna condemn us or, or have bad thoughts about us or, or they're gonna, you know, go their gossip circle. Who cares? Let's together commit to being genuine family, genuine relationships and deep friendships, that we would have the power that Christ intended for the church, that we would be a community that is different, that is revolutionary to the world, a community that they simply do not understand because we refuse to let a root of bitterness grow up inside of us. We must become experts at forgiveness. Forgiveness should be a regular part of our prayer life. Early this year, we spent 40 days in our prayer series. Uh, hopefully, you spent 40 days in uh, concentrated prayer. And if we're following the Lord's model of prayer, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, it says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, that should be a regular part of your prayer life. I hope you do use Jesus' model of prayer in your prayer life. It's a great direction if you have, um, which you should be making time on a regular basis to do, uh, to have time of prayer, that you should be able to walk through his model of prayer and really focus on each of the aspects of his model of prayer. And if we're doing that, then this should be just a regular part uh, as we forgive others, as we have been forgiven. Now, Peter who is probably my favorite disciple of all of them because I, pro I think I resonate most with him. Uh, I love his blatant honesty and his passion for anything he's involved in. Peter was passionate to the thousandth degree. Uh, but I love how he tries to get out of this principle of forgiveness by defining exactly how many times we're obligated to forgive someone. Uh, in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 22, it says, then Peter came to him, him being Jesus, and said, Lord, how many times could my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus said to him, but 70 times seven. I love that Peter like highballs Jesus at seven. Like that's the most that his brain could comprehend having to deal with someone. I'll forgive him seven times, but that's as far as I'm willing to go, Jesus. I mean, that's outlandish to think I would have to forgive someone seven times. And Jesus just blows his mind because most of us grew up learning basic math and arithmetic. These guys didn't. They couldn't have sat down and told you, oh yeah, 70 times seven. Matthew probably could have, but not Peter. Peter could, I mean, that number was inconceivable to him. 
70 times 7. Most of us can go, okay, I know, I know that number. Uh, and we can do the math in our head. That wasn't a common practice for them. And so Jesus just blows Peter's mind with how many times he's got to forgive. I mean, if you start with 7 and you end at 490, that's a big difference between the two of those numbers. I don't know if you've been in the church family long enough to wonder this question yourself and to wonder how many times do I have to forgive that person for the same offense? I mean, let's be honest. Some of us are here this morning because it was easier to switch churches than to go through the process of forgiveness. I'm just gonna be real with us this morning. Some of us might have to go back to have conversations with some people because we jumped ship instead of entering this tough, messy, and sometimes difficult process because we were convinced it had to do with them. Well, I, don't, I, don't, I can't walk through that process of forgiveness because they won't listen or they're this way or they're that way. I don't see where Jesus says that here. I just see he says 70 times seven. And Jesus doesn't end there like he does many times. He goes on to teach Peter a principle to really drive it home through his favorite method of teaching, which was a parable. Continuing on in Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 to 35, it says, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he had no way to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the slave fell face down before him and said, be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that slave had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a 100 denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow slave fell down and began begging him, be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. On the contrary, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other slaves saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And his master got angry and handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So my heavenly father will also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. Now if you're like me, uh, you have no idea what a talent or a denarii is. And so uh, this parable can be a little confusing. Uh, I think in some translations it actually tries to break it down for you a little bit better, uh, but I'm gonna do that for you this morning so you really understand what Jesus is saying, like the magnitude of what he is doing. So the one guy who owes 6,000 uh, or 10,000 talents, uh, he, a talent equals 6,000 denarii, okay? And so it says the second guy only owes 100 denarii. 
And you can, most would argue, a hundred denarii was about a day's wages. Um, that's about what you would make in a day, a hundred denarii. And so if you do the math here, the, the second slave owes about a day's worth of wages, about a hundred bucks. We'll say denarii equals dollars here. A hundred dollars he owes, uh, which is not a tiny sum of money, but it can be handled. The first guy owed 60 million denarii, 60 million days of wages. That's not payable. I love how in this parable, Jesus, that first slave, he says, uh, just be patient with me and I'll pay the debt. That guy could never pay that debt. You're never paying off $60 million debt. If you can't even make payments on it, and you're, you're trying to convince the judge that you can pay that debt. Man, how many times have we done that with Jesus? We try to pay our own debt. And just, I, I got it, I'll handle it. And Jesus, and, and in his mercy and his grace looks at us and says, I'll, I'll pay the debt. You're never gonna pay that debt. $60 million. I mean, most of us, are, we won't even see a, a fraction of that in our life. And that guy who had just been forgiven 60 million turns around to a guy that owns, owes him 100 bucks and he so quickly forgets the weight that had just been lifted off of him and he goes and starts choking his servant and saying pay me what you owe I mean I don't know about you but if in some strange roundabout way you ended up in, in 60 million dollar debt and someone forgave that debt it'd be a long time before I collected on any debts myself before I forgot the power of that forgiveness of the weight that had been lifted off my shoulders but it is exactly what we do when we hold a grudge it is no different, and that's exactly what Jesus is getting at here. 60 million is nothing compared to the debt we owed because our debt was eternal. It wasn't just money. At least if I owe you $60 million one day, I'm gonna die, and you ain't getting a penny. I mean, you can sell everything I owe, and I'll still owe $60 million. So. But you ain't getting out of it by dying, the debt that we owed God. And he paid that debt. How in the world can we turn around and hold a grudge against anybody else? It's a similar principle to what we, what we just discussed in the, the series that we had before this, the, the series through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. In 1st John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, it says, Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. If we are unwilling to forgive someone, and hear this this morning, I, it, it doesn't matter what they did or their demeanor. They could still hate your guts and they could speak evil of you at every moment of their waking hour and you are still called to forgive. Their condition their attitude their actions have nothing to do with what God has commanded us to do 
If we're unwilling to forgive someone, we cannot claim that we love them. You can't say, I'm not willing to forgive them. I love them, but I hate their guts. It doesn't work that way. If we're unwilling to forgive someone, we cannot claim we love them, and if we cannot forgive or love someone, it proves that we do not have the Holy Spirit within us. It is a clear proof that this is telling us that there's no doubt. It's not saying this is a gray area. It's not saying, well, if you're a really bitter person and you carry a lot of grudges and unforgiveness that, you know, you've just wandered a long way from Jesus. Yeah, you've wandered so far you found yourself in hell. That's where you are because you don't know Jesus, because his love so pervades us and so controls us that we find ourselves in a place that we don't want to forgive people, but we can't help it. We don't want to love them, but we're driven to love them. And we begin to want to pray even for our enemies. If we're Christians, as John says just a few verses later, we can't help but to love those around us. Dear friends, he says in chapter four, verse 11 to 12, dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is perfected in us. I don't see this as a command. I see this as a statement of reality. He's not saying you must as in you must do this. He's saying we must. We, don't, we, we can't even control it anymore. With the Holy Spirit inside of us, we can't help but to forgive. God's love isn't perfected in us when we love those who have never hurt us. God's love isn't perfected in us uh, while we stay in a church as long as nobody's offended us. That's not what this is talking about. It's perfected when we love those through all of the hurt and the junk and we learn to offer forgiveness. As Christ has forgiven us, there isn't a single one of us who is here this morning or who is watching or who will ever listen to this who knows someone who has wronged them in worse ways than we have wronged God. If you are here this morning or you're listening and you think, well, you don't know what they did. I don't care what they did. You, they, there's no way they wronged you worse than you wronged God because you're not holy. You're not perfect. And so the comparison between the two, it's not, you can't even calculate it. We wronged the all-powerful, almighty God. And so our debt was beyond the millions, trillions, billions, quadrillions, yeah, it doesn't matter, the biggest number you know, it's, it's bigger than that. And so there's no way that anybody could offend us or hurt us in a way that their debt would be greater. Their debt compared to ours is but a couple bucks, and yet ours was forgiven. If God can forgive us through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can forgive anyone because we're commanded to, we must forgive everyone. Ephesians chapter four, verses 31 to 32 says, all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting, and slander must be removed from you along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. This is, is to be the church. 
This should be the definition of church families and the community we share together. I know I've showed you this clip before, but I wanna watch it again in, in light of what we're talking about this morning as you listen to Corey Tenboom talk about uh, an example of this very principle at work. It was some time ago that I was in Berlin and there came a man to me and said, Ah, Mr. Boom, I am glad to see you. Don't you know me? And suddenly I saw that man that was one of the most cruel officers in concentration camp. And that man said, I have, I'm now a Christian, I have found the Lord Jesus. I read my Bible and I know that there is forgiveness for all the sins of the whole world, also for my sins. I have forgiveness for the cruelties I have done. But then I have asked God's grace for an opportunity that I could ask one of my very victims forgiveness. And Fräulein Zambom, will you forgive me? And I could not. I remembered the suffering of my dying sister through him. But when I saw, when I experienced that I could not forgive, suddenly I knew I myself have no forgiveness. But I was not able, I could not, I could only hate him. I took one of these beautiful texts, one of these boundless resources, Romans 5, 5. And thank you, Father, that your love is stronger than my hatred and unforgiveness. That same moment, I was free. And I could say, brother, give me your hand. And I shook hands with him. And it was as if I felt God's love stream through my arms. You never touch so the ocean of God's love as that you forgive your enemies. Can you forgive? No. I can't either. But he can. such a true reality I mean I love the rawness of it just she couldn't forgive him and not a person on this world would ever blame her for not being able to forgive I mean if there's somebody I say okay you get a pass that that goes beyond 70 times 7 what she witnessed what she experienced what she went through I love I love that when we can be honest as Christians. Like I love that she wasn't just like, oh, you know, and the love of Jesus came over me and it was a beautiful moment. She was like, no, I hated him. I hated his guts. But, <laughs> I love that, but God. The reality that his love is greater than our hate. And so if his love exists in our hearts, it must win out. And if it's not, then you need to be honest with the reality that that love is not present. You might know a lot of Bible verses. You might have been in church for a very long, long time. But if you can hate, if you can withhold forgiveness, then his love does not exist. 
because it's not breaking through the hate. And it always will because his love is greater. In that video, it shares a profound truth. Romans chapter five, verse five. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Notice this doesn't say if you've reached a certain level of Christianity. This doesn't say if you're an elder, if you're a pastor, if you've been ordained, if you've been called uh, to to some uh, significant area of ministry that his love, no, it just says uh, God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. It resides there. It exists there. And so as believers, we don't even, we're not even left with the option because his love will always win out when it is present. It might take some time. I'm not saying it's always an instantaneous thing. It's not like, boom, in the moment. I mean, whatever God did in Corey Ten Boom's moment there, that's amazing. For me, I'd probably have to go back and find that person after I spit in their face and walked away. It might take some time, and I'm not saying there's not a process to this, but it will win out. His love will win out because it's not about your ability to forgive. You can't say, well, I just can't. I just don't have it in me to do that. Okay, that's real, but that's not what you're called to do. It's about the love of God through the Holy Spirit. That's why if we're unable to forgive others, it's a clear evidence of the lack of the presence of God in our lives. Matthew chapter six, verses 14 and 15 says, for if you forgive people their wrongdoing, your heavenly father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive people, your father will not forgive your wrongdoing. And you might look at this and say, well, does that mean that you can lose your salvation? I I believe what this is saying is if you can't forgive someone, if you won't, it means you never were forgiven. And so you never will be. Because you think you've attained an area of righteousness that you no longer have to. You think that somehow you are above somebody else in some way, fashion, or form. And, And the reality is there's nobody in this world you will ever see, talk to, encounter You can go to the darkest prison of the world and you'll never meet somebody who's less deserving of God's love than you. Each and every one of us, none of us deserved it. None of us was owed it. And none of us has achieved a level of righteousness over any other person. But God, he has filled us and through his Holy Spirit, he indwells us. And you might be thinking this morning, well, it's not hurting anybody to hold on to this grudge or you just don't understand what this person did to me. It's not hurting anybody for me to feel this way. I'm just gonna keep secretly hiding this. I'm gonna hear uh, the pastor talk about at communion Sunday about how we need to forgive and and I'm just gonna keep ignoring that because it's my hurt and it's mine to keep and I'm gonna do whatever I want with it. And it's just not true. As we talked about earlier, what happens is it defiles others around us. I've never met a bitter person that people enjoyed to be around. Never met a bitter person whose family loved to invite them to the holidays or be in their house for the holidays or spend time around them. It's just not, because they defile everything around them. The the dark cloud just sits over them because that's what bitterness does. 
because it, it completely rejects the very nature of God, which is a loving, forgiving Father. And if we reject that very nature, then the only thing we're left with is this demonic hatred, and that will reside over us. Numbers chapter 32, verse 23 says, but if you don't do this, you will certainly sin against the Lord. Be sure your sin will catch up with you. You might think that it's your little pet hatred. You might think it's your little, little pet unforgiveness and you think nobody else knows that you're withholding forgiveness from that person. But your sin has found you out already. That bitterness, it's like, uh, you know, I have a lot of friends and family members that have quit smoking. And one of the things, if you've ever quit smoking, you realize pretty quickly is like, I thought I was covering it up with like mouthwash. And then you stop smoking, what happens? You realize people that smoke stink. Like you can smell it, doesn't matter, all it smells like is smoke and whatever they try to cover it with. And you start to learn that as a smoker, you don't realize that until you're done with it and you, you, know, you get rid of it and you realize how badly you were covering it up in the first place. And that's what bitterness is like. You think you've got it covered up, you think nobody knows. And then once you're free, watch what happens to the relationships around you. Watch what happens to those that you have been defiling with your unforgiveness. See, at the very, very least, bitterness, it hurts our relationship with God. And so it must be dealt with. All bitterness, any unforgiveness in our lives must be fully acknowledged fully healed and fully released. We cannot stop on that journey until we are confident it has been fully released. And here's the thing though with bitterness and unforgiveness is you might go through this process and be like, done. And then a year later, that thing pops right back up. That's why it calls it a root of bitterness. Because man, I hate gardening. And every spring, though I think I've eradicated those ridiculous weeds that keep popping up. Every spring season, every summer, they pop up. Those roots keep coming back. And so you might have some significant hurts that this process of, of acknowledging it, of heal, being healed and released, that might be a, a, a repetitive process you go through time after time after time after time. And hope, the hope is in that each time it gets a little easier and it has a little bit less power until it no longer has power. But we can't just be like, well, I forgave it, so I'm just gonna, now I'm just gonna sit in this bitter place because I already forgave that person and so I don't have to do it again. Yeah, you do, 70 times seven and beyond. So what can we take away from what we talked about this morning? The weight of bitterness will always, 100% of the time, Keep us from a vibrant relationship with Jesus. If you're wondering this morning, if, you, if this is resonating with you and you're like, yeah, there's definitely at least a root. There may be a full-grown tree of bitterness in my life. And you wonder why it's been X amount of time since you have felt close to God, since you have felt like you have an intimacy with God. That is why the weight of bitterness will always keep you from that vibrant relationship with Jesus. 
to knowingly hold on to bitterness is a clear indicator we do not have the love of Christ in our hearts. If you're trying to release bitterness in your life and you feel like it's not working, like you're desperately wanting to rid yourself of bitterness, talk to one of us. Hopefully you know who the elders of the church are and and you know some deaconesses and so you can go at least, at the very least, to one of them and have a conversation and just say, I am so fed up with this. I'm so done with this bitter spirit that is within me and I want to release it. Talk to us. Engage the family that is around you so that you can have others in your corner and praying for you and and continually pointing your eyes back to Jesus because the biggest problem with bitterness that it does is it takes our eyes off of Jesus. It gets it on ourselves or on other people. And And we get so distracted with what's going on around us. It's why those who have a bitter spirit always have a critical spirit because they begin to look for faults in others because that's what happens with the bitter spirit. I believe there are people here this morning who are struggling to release bitterness, who have tried in the past and feel like they've failed or it keeps coming back. And they want to release the bitterness both toward others and ourselves. And that's an area of bitterness that might take a lot of work. Some of us are dealing with bitterness we have toward ourselves for the things in our past. It's easy, much easier for us to release other people than it is to release ourselves from some of the things in our own past, from things that we've done, that we still feel like we owe God a debt. Some of us are stuck in that place where we feel like we gotta work harder, we gotta attend church more, we gotta put more money in a plate, we gotta, we gotta try harder to pay back that debt because we still owe we need to apply the forgiveness passages to ourselves first before we can offer forgiveness to others. There are things from our own past which must be fully acknowledged, fully healed, and fully released. Only then can we hope to reach forward to the abundant life that God has for us in Christ Jesus. So the two questions I leave you with this morning. Where Is there a root of bitterness in your life? Is there a root? Is there a full-blown tree? Is there a garden of bitterness in your life? Because you've not tended to it in a long time. And I feel like the most important question is, what are you gonna do about it? We're here, elders, deaconesses, we're here. If you wanna talk, I promise you, There is not an elder or a deaconess here that is gonna look at you sideways when you confess the spirit or the root of bitterness because we've all been there. We all know what it's like to want to withhold forgiveness, to want to hate somebody but be driven to love by the love of Jesus. And we all can resonate with at times the almost inability to forgive somebody because the hurt's just too real, too strong, or maybe it's just been going on for too long. And so you need people to join you in prayer, to push back the darkness and help you out of that dark valley. That's okay and that's that's respectable in its own right, that you would engage the community around you. This is a family. 
where we can relate to one another in our brokenness and in our hurt. We can be vulnerable. We must be vulnerable in order to walk appropriately with Jesus because it's only through community we're gonna see God do amazing things. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your love. God, it changes everything. Every aspect of what we talked about today is because of your love. Without your love for us, none of this makes sense because we lose the power to engage this bitter spirit, this root of bitterness without your love. But when your love exists in our hearts, it accomplishes everything if we simply allow it. If we have invited you into our hearts, Holy Spirit, we trust there is a fountain of love which will never dry up, can never be extinguished by the actions of others, and can, be, and can never be drained by a certain amount of hurt. And so, Lord, I thank you that we can forgive. I thank you that, like that first servant who has forgiven over 60 million Lord, we stand in a place where that seems like chump change, even that significant of a debt. And so, Lord, I thank you that we can turn around to any who owe us an emotional debt, a pain debt, a hurt debt, and we can offer true forgiveness only through your power and your love. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that your love would so pervade this place I pray for those in in this place who are shackled by by the demonic spirit of bitterness and unforgiveness. Lord, I pray that you would break those chains this morning. You would release them from that burden that they have carried for too long. Holy Spirit, would you invade that space, shine your light, and would your love so overwhelm them they would be led to a place of forgiveness. God, I pray that we would hold all offenses with open hands in front of us, knowing that that you desperately want to take the burdens we carry through our pain and our hurt, and would we not try to hold on to them? I pray that you would break our hearts for others around us, that our eyes would be kept solely on you, Jesus, that nothing, no actions of those around us, no... uh, hurts that we've experienced in the past, no offenses that we can write up as someone else's debt would get our eyes off of you, but that with our eyes on you, Jesus, we would engage the community around us, we would engage the family here, and we would love with your love, which we know knows no bounds. Lord, I pray that you would bless us with your presence this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Have a great week, and I pray that this would strike home for you this morning.